This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This spring, colleges across the country were rocked by scandal. Parents seeking to get their children into elite colleges, accused of going as far as bribing coaches, faking athletic profiles, and arranging for their kids to cheat on standardized tests. $25 million. That's what parents are accused of paying in bribes to help get their kids into prominent universities across this nation. The biggest name so far, actress Felicity Huffman of Desperate Housewives fame. The parents, they say, paid money to Rick Singer. According to the feds, Singer would then bribe college coaches to label their children as top athletes when they were anything but. Big-time schools targeted Georgetown, Yale, Stanford, University of Texas, USC, UCLA, just to name a few. Full House actress Lori Loughlin has pleaded not guilty in the college admissions scheme. Loughlin and her fashion designer husband, Massimo Gianelli, are accused of paying $500,000 to a fake charity. The alleged scam helped get their two daughters accepted into USC as crew recruits, though neither is a rower. The FBI describing it as a sham that strikes at the core of the college admissions process. The scandal laid bare central questions about college admissions. Who gets in and who doesn't? And how much they pay to get there? And this week, new documents reveal how one school's admissions officers explicitly weighed just how much money an applicant could bring in in donations. Today on the show, what is going wrong in the college admissions process? And why is it so hard to level the playing field? Welcome to The Journal, our daily show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Friday, September 6th. One of the schools named in the investigation is the University of Southern California. USC is really at the center of this case. It had multiple coaches and an athletic administrator all charged in the case. Melissa Korn covers higher education, and she's been all over this scandal. And this week, in a Boston court, there was a development. On Tuesday, documents from inside USC's admissions office became public. In college admissions, it's an open secret that promises of major donations help applicants get in. But now, these documents from USC reveal just how explicit that transaction can be. This is, it's not even whispered in higher ed. It's known that money talks in admissions decisions. Being a kid or a sibling or a grandkid of a major donor absolutely has an impact on admissions decisions at some schools. But to see it so naked, to see it so blunt that this is one of the columns of the assessment, it's really startling to see it like that. 
So there are 18 documents. You've got a few spreadsheets, and these are intricate color-coded spreadsheets that list the names of applicants, their SAT or ACT score, their GPA, who recommended them, kind of whose friend they are, and what's of special interest to them. In that special interest column is everything from longtime donor or made a pledge to donate or father is surgeon or car dealer, things like that. Kind of, hey, development and admissions people, be aware that this person has some special thing attached to them, often related to money. Who had access to these spreadsheets and who made them? So the spreadsheets were made by a number of different people. The ones that we have now seen are generally in emails between the senior USC athletic administrator who's been charged in the case, Donna Heinel, and someone from the admissions office. In some cases, there's also a senior athletic person who's in charge of development. So he's in charge of fundraising for USC athletics, and he has his own wish list of people to help get into the school. And these are people who might be athletes, but might not be. So they could be really good soccer players, or they just happen to have lineage, you know, family, grandma and grandpa and great-grandma who have all given money to the university over time. And then this is shared with admissions officers? This is shared with admissions officers. And it's not a, here are the people we want in, please admit them. It's, here are the people we want in, please admit them, but we understand that it's not a sure thing. What else was in the 18 files? There's some jockeying over who's going to get the money from a donor, whether it was the business school or the athletics department. So we have one development officer saying, there's plenty of room with this family for everyone to win here, in my opinion, meaning there's enough money to go around to all of the different departments with this family. They estimate the family is good for between $1 and $5 million donation. And then an athletics official tells an athletics fundraiser that if this isn't working out the way you planned, if the money isn't going where we want it to be going, I can have admissions pull the approval. Whoa. So that's pretty blatant. You know, if we don't get the money we want, This person doesn't have to be admitted. The development officer responds, really sucks. Don't pull. We will guilt them. Wow. They lay all their cards right out there. And they might have been blustering. We don't know. The admissions team doesn't take everyone that these people recommend, not by a long shot. But even the idea of making it that kind of tit for tat is startling. Guilt is like brutal. Yes. We'll guilt them into like writing us a giant check. Mm -hmm. Melissa and our colleague Jennifer Levitz reviewed these documents because they were part of a court filing. Many parents and coaches and co-conspirators charged in the college admission scandal are in the thick of their legal battles. Sentencing starts next week for parents who have pleaded guilty. Others have pleaded not guilty, including USC former athletic administrator Donna Heinel. This court filing, with its 18 USC documents, was made by a lawyer representing a father who's been charged with fraud. The father pleaded not guilty. In response to the release of the documents, USC said it's not a secret that they have special interest tags for certain candidates, and noted that the emails showed that athletic officials can't, quote, compel admissions decisions. The university also called the document release an attempt by the father's lawyer to distract from the criminal charges the father faces. And what was the defense lawyer arguing that that these documents show? So the attorney was arguing that these documents show that this is how it really works, that 
if you make a donation, you're getting special consideration at the school. The school encourages such behavior by giving that special consideration. So his client, a father, wasn't paying a bribe. He was just giving a donation the way everyone else did. That's his argument. The lawyer's argument is that paying to get in is just how the game works, that the unfair nature of college admissions is systemic. There are other systemic problems with college admissions, problems that don't have to do with paying for entry, whether legally or illegally. They have to do with the inherent disparities that exist in the country. After the break, the story of an attempt to fix some of the problems in the college admissions process. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever, and you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. Welcome back. A cornerstone of most college applications is a score from standardized tests, like the SAT or the ACT. Colleges often rely heavily on these tests to decide which students to accept. The SAT weeds people out. That's what it's for. That's Doug Belkin. He also covers higher education. And despite colleges' reliance on these scores, there's an inherent problem with them. The SAT correlates very closely with class and race and opportunity. Is there data about how the SAT scores break down on race? Tons of it. Asian students score highest, followed by white students, followed by Latinos, followed by blacks. And this changes over time, but mostly it tracks by class, which reflects education and wealth. And And race. And race. This disparity in scores across class and race is something that the organization behind the SAT, the College Board, is trying to account for. Earlier this year, Doug broke the story that the College Board came up with a way for admissions officers to look at students' SAT scores and factor in the different places that they come from. The College Board compiled a metric based on students' non-academic data. The way they built it was to pull these socioeconomic data points from both the school and the neighborhood. How many advanced placement courses does it offer? What's the average score on the AP? What is the uh, student-teacher ratio? How many kids are going to college? How many kids are graduating from that high school? From the neighborhoods, things like crime is an issue um, that's taken into account. Housing stability, foreclosures, divorce, just family stability. And they crunched all this stuff together. And they created something that they called the Environmental Context Dashboard. And admissions officers who first came to this called it the adversity score. Does the name sort of speak to the objective? So the point is to situate that SAT score inside of the context of where this kid is coming from. So if you're coming from Nutrier High School or Scarsdale or Rye, a 1200 should be interpreted one way. And if you're coming from a community in the Bronx or Baltimore, a 1,200 should be considered something else. It's a lot harder to to come up with a 1,200 than if you're coming from a very wealthy, well-resourced school. 
The so-called adversity score is a separate number from a student's SAT score. The adversity score is ranked on a scale from 1 to 100. The score of 1 means your high school is one of the best in the country. High graduation rates, lots of AP classes, in a safe neighborhood. And a score of 100 means that your school has few resources, a low graduation rate, maybe no guidance counselors in an area with a lot of crime. Here's how the college board president, David Coleman, explained it to CNN in May. We're offering general background information about a student's school and about a student's neighborhood. But that would be the same for all students in that school or all students in that neighborhood. It's how their neighborhood and school stack up. And what this score was shared with admissions officers, not with the students and not with their high schools. And the college board didn't share exactly how the different variables were weighted. But the goal was clear. Ultimately, what they hoped it would do was to help colleges identify talented students at under-resourced schools that they could give a hand up to who they might otherwise have missed. That was the intention of it. That was the stated intention of it. So, you know, in higher education, they talk about Einstein behind a plow. There's some brilliant kid in a farm in Iowa who's behind a plow and can do math and and just a brilliant thinker, but nobody knows who he is because the school is a one-room schoolhouse or something that doesn't have a reputation and his teachers don't have connections and his family didn't go to college. The adversity score helps to contextualize where that kid was coming from. The college board started rolling out this adversity score about two years ago. 50 colleges used it last year and about 150 will use it this fall. And some of the schools that have been using it have seen results. I spoke to the admissions officer at Yale who said it was a really significant and important part of their admissions process that they're very keyed into bringing in more kids from diverse backgrounds. So they want to find kids, these sharp minds coming from places that don't have connections to Yale. And they've done it. I mean, that's the thing. Yale's worked really hard and the percentage of kids who are coming from families that are eligible for Pell, which means that they're lower middle class probably, or below that, is increasing. So these, these tools are helping these schools achieve this, the wealthier schools in particular. While the colleges were getting the results they wanted, there was a catch. Not many people knew they were doing this. So when Doug broke the story that this adversity score, this environmental context dashboard was being used, a lot of people were upset. Folks were not happy. If you are bringing in students who are deserving and smart and coming from uh, poor places, you are using a finite resource. And so students who are coming from well-to-do schools uh, that have little adversity essentially are losing ground in this race for these finite resources, these seats at these elite schools, which have become so important in the culture right now. And the sort of complaint is, The college board is stepping outside of its lane. They are trying to socially engineer higher education in a way that uh, is not their role, and they should stop. That was the complaint. The backlash to the adversity score perhaps wasn't surprising to the college board. 20 years ago, a similar program was introduced. It was called Strivers. The Striver program looked at data points about a student their parents' income, their high school's academic strength, their neighborhood, and sometimes their race. The program would generate a baseline SAT score based on those factors. If you outperformed the baseline by 200 points or higher, you were labeled a striver. And that label was supposed to say to colleges, hey, I'm someone who's capable of college-level work, who's done better than my circumstances would suggest. 
This driver program faced so much backlash from schools and parents that it had to be dropped. And now, 20 years later, facing a similar backlash to the adversity score, the college board made a change. They've pulled the adversity score. They've rebranded the adversity score. The same information will be available, but instead of uh, amalgamating it into one single score, it will now be in two scores. And that's really the only difference. What is the difference between the two scores? One will represent the neighborhood you come from, crime rate, housing costs, things like that. And one will represent the school. Number of AP exams, average SAT scores, number of kids on school lunch, those two scores will not be combined. There will be no one single score. You'll see both of the scores on this quote-unquote landscape, which is the new term they've developed for the environmental context dashboard. And they've gotten rid of the single number that was causing them such a headache. But there must have been some communities that supported it, that embraced this as a way to equalize and create a level playing field. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of schools that were quite happy that this was happening. And, you know, if you speak to a principal or a guidance counselor or a teacher at an under-resourced school, they know what their kids are up against. They know that these kids need a break, that they don't have SAT tutors and they don't have guidance counselors that have connections to the admissions officers at Yale. They know any help is hugely appreciated. So they like this. One of the things that happened is that this is a proxy for affirmative action. That's what this boils down to. This does not use race. Now, obviously, housing in America is segregated. Schools are segregated. So there's some, you know, some of that, uh, there's going to be race that, that runs through this. But race is not part of the uh, landscape or the environmental context dashboard or the adversity score. And it's one way that higher education is trying to deal with inequality and the fact that schools, elite schools, don't look like the rest of America. They're trying to use this lever to bring more kids up. But there's not that many seats at Harvard, and there's not that many seats at Princeton. The thing I don't understand about the backlash is that the adversity score will help poor urban kids who tend to be people of color. And it will also help poor rural kids who tend to be white or Latino. So it seems like it lifts all boats, right? Like, Right. So the critique is less about race, at least overtly, and more about the idea that a student can earn as high an SAT score as, as they can earn. There are free study tools. You can focus yourself, and it's up to the student to get that score and that they shouldn't get a, um, a bump um, because of where they live. So it's, it's sort of that sense of individual responsibility should trump everything else. And do you think this change from an adversity score to two numbers will placate the critics of the first iteration of this score? It might, and then they'll listen to this podcast and think, wait a minute, you mean nothing changed? Um, think about getting into college from the standpoint of if you're upper middle class, uh, affluent uh, middle class, and you're working hard and you're playing by the rules and you've worked hard to get your kid into a good public school district, you don't want to see more advantages given to kids just because of where they were born that will hurt your kid. I think those are the kids, that middle class, are the families who look at this and feel threatened. And it's coming at a time when the numbers of applications to the best schools in the country 
have tripled in 20 years. So the stress on families to do this right at the huge cost that they're being asked to shell out is just stressing everything out. And I think that energy is behind the frustration and their backlash. The backlash toward the adversity score is pretty similar to the sentiment that the college admissions scandal has brought out. Here's Melissa. One of the big issues right now in American higher education is people don't think it's fair. Who gets in? Who gets to graduate with debt or no debt? And what kind of jobs they land afterwards? People who aren't winning out feel left out. They, they feel like they're kind of being screwed by the system. So when you have something like this where these families that, frankly, their kids were probably going to do fine wherever they went, if they went to college, um, and they had the family connections to get decent jobs out of school if they wanted, like, they were going to be fine. It feels like a betrayal of what the system's supposed to be for a lot of people. That's all for today, Friday, September 6th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. We are your hosts, Ryan Knudsen. And Kate Leinbaugh. We're produced by Annie Minoff, Ricky Novetsky, Sarah Platt, and Willa Rubin. Our senior producer is Pia Gadkari. Annie Rose Strasser is our supervising producer. Griffin Tanner is our engineer. Our executive producer is Gerard Cole. Our music this week comes from Haley Shaw and Bobby Lord from Gimlet. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Sam Baer. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.